We're going to be continuing our series in the life of Jacob today. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back, and we'd love to put one in your hand. We're going to be in Genesis 29 uh, today. Uh, but, but here's what I'm recognizing. Family's just really hard. Uh, I, I don't know why I'm, I'm 43 and I'm, I've got a, two teenage sons and, a, and an eight-year-old daughter, and I don't know why I'm just realizing how difficult it is now. But family is really hard. This weekend, and, and it's so full of ups and downs. Are you with me? I, like this weekend, I, we, my daughter is in The Little Mermaid, the play, with the young actors something uh, here in Marietta. And so she did her first show yesterday morning and does the second one uh, this afternoon at 3 o'clock. And she's just the cutest, like I'm telling you guys oozing cuteness all over the stage. She was born for the stage. If you know Claire, uh, she is not shy. She is not afraid to dance and move and do her thing. And so we went yesterday and watched her in The Little Mermaid. When she was a baby, she couldn't say mermaid, and she would say mermaids. And so her favorite movie at that time was The Little Mermaid. And so it it all comes back around, right? And I'm watching this beautiful little girl dancing on stage. I'm just thinking, man, kids are great. I love my kids. I love family. They're so incredible. And then we got in the car uh, with my teenage boys, uh, and they instantly, all three of them, started arguing over something absolutely ridiculous that would not end. Yeah, are you with me, parents? Are you with me on this? Like, it was, it's always a competition of some sort, right? Like, like I don't know why my 16-year-old son has to prove that he's better at math than my 8-year-old daughter. But he feels the need to do this often. And so they're like doing story problems in the backseat and arguing over who's smarter. There's always these competitions around who's better and who's smarter and who has more of what and who's prettier and who's all of these different things. My kids love these competitions and I hate them, right? I just want to pull the car over and smack all of them, right? That's what I want to do. And and so having families is hard. And and here's a hard thing about families is, is it's hard to find examples of healthy families families, isn't it? Uh, like, like sometimes we look for the media to like give us like, I, I would love if there was a TV show that had a father who was present and actually cared about his family and loved them. Uh, I can't find that show on television. Uh, in fact, my kids watch the Disney Channel, which, which I like to call future hell. Uh, like it, like I, I really do think a lot of the Disney Channel sitcoms are playing in hell. Like they're just, they, for, for grown-ups, that's what's actually happening. Um, just reruns of those over and over. They are the worst shows. If anybody, are, you, are you guys not watching these or is it just me? I, I'm telling some of you, you need to turn on the Disney Channel and just watch some of these sitcoms on the Disney Channel. They are the worst things I've ever seen in my entire life. But in, in those, all of the parents in every single one of these shows are idiots, like, they're caricatures of just ridiculous, like, they're all like Kramer in Seinfeld. Like, every parent on every Disney Channel show is Kramer, right? That's what it is. They're just terrible. And so we look for the media for these examples, and we can't find them. There's, there's no pictures of them out there. And, 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 and even when we kind of look around, it, it's hard to find families that are examples for us to follow. Um, I, I'm always conscientious of finding people who are older than me, whose kids are like in college or graduated from college, and they seem normal. Uh, and I'm, I always just want to talk to them and be like, hey, your kids seem normal. My, mine aren't. Can you help me? 
Right? Can, you, can you help me figure this out? I, I want to find like, examples to follow and, 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 and people to, to show me the example of, of how did you raise your family and, and what did you do with your kids and, and how do your kids grow up to know Jesus and, and ask them all of these questions. They're, it's hard to find. 1 Corinthians 4, chapter 15 says this. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, that word guardians is actually the word pedagogue, which means teacher. Right? Even if you've had 10,000 teachers in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. And, and what Paul is saying here is we've got a lot of people that are willing to teach us. Right? You guys, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard 10,000 sermons. Right? I've heard 10,000 plus. Uh, I think I've preached 10,000 sermons. I've listened to myself 10,000 times. That's exhausting. Right? Uh, and, but what we don't have is many fathers. We've got a lot of people who are willing to teach us, willing to share some things. But what we don't have is spiritual parents. What we don't have is mothers and fathers who are willing to stay. What we don't have is long obedience in the same direction over and over again. So we look for them in our culture and it's hard to find them. But you know what the crazy thing is? We look in the Bible and it's hard to find them. Genesis is brutal about families. Every family in Genesis is more jacked up than your family, I promise. And we got some jacked up families in here. But I'm telling you, like they are, they are, it is crazy how brutal these families are. And sometimes what we do is we read the Bible looking for spiritual heroes. And what we find is normal people like you and me. The only hero in the Bible is Jesus. The only perfect example in the Bible is Jesus. The rest of us are just people that are trying to get it right and failing. And that's what we see over and over again in the narrative of, of, of the Old Testament. And so we walk through this journey of how we got to Jacob. And Jacob has a jacked up family of origin. But now in Genesis 29, Jacob's starting his own family. And that's just as jacked up. And so we look at this and we understand that family is incredibly hard. And here's what we recognize. Sometimes it's incredibly hard to not be in a family. Right? People that are single, that's a, that's a difficult thing. But sometimes it's incredibly hard to be a part of a family. And so what we can do with, with family is we do one of two things for it. We, we make like an ideal, idyllic picture of a family. Right? If, like, if I only had the two and a half kids, the white picket fence, the house by the road, if I had this perfect life and this perfect spouse, then everything would be great. I used to think that way. Right? The other side of that is cynicism towards family. Right? As we, we watch how in our culture marriages are failing. We watch how difficult it is to raise kids. And so we, we, have, we become cynical about it and say, well, I'm never getting married. I'm never doing this thing. I'm never doing this family thing. Both of those responses to family are incorrect. And so today we want to look at the life of Jacob. And as we look at this passage about family, we recognize that intertwined within this story of a jacked up family is also the story of our search for satisfaction in something other than God. It's our ability to take something that God, was cre that God created for good and to make it an idol. Right? So, so God created the earth and created the world and created the garden and did all of these things for good. And what we've done is we've taken the things that God created for good and we've distorted them. 
We've taken the things that God created for good and we've used them for our own selfish desires. And, and we've used them to become idols. And I recognize idol is a weird term in our culture. So when I say idol, let's understand this. I'm not talking about us like bowing to a statue of somebody. All right? I'm not talking about us like bowing to a statue. But what do I talk about when I talk about idols is when we place something as ultimate that's not ultimate. Martin Luther said, our hearts are idol factories. Uh, it's a blind or excessive devotion to something that's not really God. It's anything that's placed above the one true God. And one of our greatest idols in our culture, whether we like it or not, is family. It is. Family becomes an idol. I meet so many young people who say, if I could just find the perfect spouse, then I would be happy. Then everything would be great. Then my life would be satisfied. Then everything would be perfect. I, I, I meet so many moms who, who, who after their kids leave the nest, they don't know who they are apart from being a mom. Their identity is so wrapped up in being a mother that they've lost their identity when their kids leave the home. I, I, I know moms and dads who are helicopter parents who just follow their kids around everywhere and want to live vicariously through their kids' sports. Come on, dads. Or want to live vicariously through their, their kids' schoolwork or whatever. And so their kids become this idol. I know people that have children and have young children at home. And what happens is when they have young kids, they stop living they stop hanging out with other people. They stop doing anything. And, and the whole world revolves around nap time, right? Like, I can't do anything. I can't have any friends. I can't have any life because of nap time, right? And, and, and what we got to do is we got to start understanding that there is a way that we can take this beautiful thing that God created as family and we can turn it into an idol that actually pulls us away from the heart of God. It actually pulls us away from the place where God desires for us to be. It's taking what was created for good and making it evil. We do this with money, right? Money's not bad. It has no good or bad properties in it whatsoever. But what we've done is we've used it for our own personal gain, for our own pride. We do this with sex, right? Can we just acknowledge on Mother's Day that sex is good, right? And we've used it for something bad. We do this in every area of our lives, and we do the same thing with family. So Jacob, here's Jacob. When we reach him in Genesis 29, Jacob has deceived his father and received the birthright. He's deceived his father and received the blessing, but he has nothing. So he went to Bethel, and he hung out in Bethel, and he had this dream as he was in Bethel that God said, I'm still with you. The promise is still yours. It's still going to happen. But Jacob's thinking, I don't have a family. I don't have any way of claiming the birthright. I have no power. I have no money. I have no authority. I have no way of actually doing anything within this whole world. And so Jacob starts wandering, and as he's wandering, he runs into his crazy uncle Laban. All of us have a weird uncle. Right? Everybody, does everybody have a weird uncle? If he might be here with you today. Uh, but everybody's got a weird uncle, and, and Jacob's is Laban. And so Jacob, Jacob's weird uncle is Uncle Laban. And so he shows up, and he shows up on Uncle Laban's land, and he sees this beautiful girl from across the room, right? If this is you in college, there's like an 80s love song playing, like a Richard Marx song playing in the back of his head. And he sees Rachel, and immediately it's love at first sight. The moment he sees Rachel, he says, that's it. And, and you have to understand the pattern of Jacob here, right? Jacob is a guy who is, his name means deceiver. And he's a guy who is willing to do whatever he wants to get what he wants. 
He's willing to deceive. He's willing to cheat. He's willing to manipulate. He's willing to do whatever is possible to grab his own desires. He doesn't know what to do with his desires. And so rather than surrendering his desires to God and saying, this is what I want. I trust that you'll give it to me. He believes that he has to shortcut God and do his own thing. And his eyes were set on the birthright. Right? And so he tricked his brother into getting the birthright by, with a bowl of soup, which is really dumb. Right? And then his eyes were set on the blessing. And he tricked his father into getting him the blessing by making some good stew from his mom. Right? It's all ridiculous. And now his heart is set on Rachel. And Jacob is saying, if I could just have Rachel, then everything's going to be good. I would suggest that all of us, somewhere deep in our heart, have something that we would say, if I could just have this, everything would be great. If I could just get that promotion, if I could just have this relationship, if I could just get that corner office, if I could get a boat to go out on the weekends, boats would be fun, right? If I could just get that car, if I could get that new house, if I could get my kids out of the house and get them graduated from college, right? If I could, and we just start naming these things of if I could just have this. So Genesis 29, verse 14, it says, after Jacob had stayed with him a whole month, he'd stayed with Laban, Laban says to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you not work for me for nothing? So tell me what your wages should be. Laban is really smart. So Laban is what we would call a con man. And Laban sees an opportunity here in Jacob. So what Laban notices is Jacob is in love with Rachel. What he also notices is in that culture, at that time, there was a bride price to pay to, to marry somebody. So you had to pay a certain amount of camels or goats or I don't know, whatever they had, right, furs. I, I don't know what they're trading for, for women at that time. But they, there's something ridiculous going on where they're buying and selling these, these women with a bride price. It's a terrible, terrible practice. We'll talk about that later. But Jacob, at this time, doesn't have anything. All he has is a birthright, a blessing, and a promise from God. But he has no wealth. He has no resources. He has no goats. He has no cattle. He has no furs. He's got, no, he's got nothing, and so Laban recognizes a few things. He recognizes, one, Jacob is a really smart guy. Jacob is one of those guys who would do well no matter what he does. Have you ever met that person? Like, if he's a basketball coach, his team's going to be the best. If he's a professor, he's going to be the best professor there ever was. If he's a businessman, his business is going to succeed. Right? Jacob is just one of those guys who knows how to get things done. And so Laban sees this in Jacob and says, I can capitalize on this and I can kill two birds with one stone. The first bird that I can kill is this guy can make me a whole lot of money. If this guy's in charge of all of my resources... He's going to multiply it and grow it, and something amazing is going to happen. And now we see the second problem in verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Now my sister's name is Leah, and I loved this passage when I was a little boy. Uh, this was my favorite because I loved to tell her that she was the ugly daughter. Um, it's not nice, but I was 12, right? And so... That's what you do. Uh, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said this, I'll work for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than some other man, so stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days for him because of his love for her. Oh, <laughs> sounds so romantic and idyllic and perfect and beautiful, but it's, a, it's jacked up. Um, 
here, here's what I want to say. The next line in this, uh, let's go verse 21 here. I, I just want to suggest to everybody who's not married that you never say this to your father-in-law, okay? Fellas in the room, single guys, I see a few of you. Let's, let's avoid this one. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is complete and I want to make love to her, right? Jacob is like, he just gets, he goes after what he wants, right? And he just puts it on the table. This is what I want. This is what I'm ready for. He's driven by his desires. He's a deceiver. He will do anything he can to get what he wants. And he's saying, I've got the birthright. I've got the blessing. Now all I need is Rachel. One definition of sin is looking for satisfaction in something that only God can give you. One definition of sin is searching for an idol to fulfill us when only God can fulfill us. And so here's what's interesting about the Bible. The Bible doesn't just talk about we sin, but it talks about when we sin, we actually unleash a force that works against us and those around us. This is very important for us to understand. When we make a mistake, when we fall short of the glory of God, we actually unleash something that is working against us and around us. So when we idolize something other than God, when we try and seek our satisfaction in something other than him, when we fall short of what he's planned for us, when we sin and decide my way is better than your way, what actually begins to happen is we begin to unleash something. So think about this in terms of Jacob's life. Isaac, his father, sins. And that sin is he loves his older son Esau more than he loves his younger son. And it unleashes chaos in the family. And it doesn't just hurt Isaac, it hurts Jacob and Esau. Jacob decides he's going to deceive his brother. And that sin doesn't just hurt Jacob, it hurts Esau. And it hurts Isaac. And it hurts Rebekah. It hurts the whole family. Jacob decides he's going to sin against his father and deceive him out of the blessing. And it doesn't just hurt him, it hurts everybody around him. Uh, Laban decides he's going to cheat Jacob here. And it doesn't just hurt Jacob, it hurts everyone around us. When we sin, we actually hurt ourselves. And then oftentimes what happens is the consequences of our sin is that we hurt those that we love. The consequences of our own brokenness and our own sin is that we injure the people that we love the most. We injure our family in the midst of these things. And this is what begins to happen. Sometimes we don't sin. Sometimes we get sinned against. And the, and the, and the consequences of that are just as brutal as if we sinned ourselves. Have you been there? It's hard. And it hurts, and it's difficult. So Laban, verse 22, brought together all the people of the place, and he gave a giant feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave, her, gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. And verse 25 is this really interesting passage. It says, when morning came, there was Leah. When morning came, there was Leah. So I don't know if Jacob had been drinking uh, I, I, there's a lot of rumors that, uh, well, there's, I've, I've heard that at, at weddings sometimes people drink too much. I've never experienced that, but I've heard that. Uh, and I've seen that there's rumors that in this culture all the women wore garbs, and so everything was covered except their eyes, which is why it talks about Leah's eyes and Rachel's eyes. And so maybe he didn't know, he didn't understand, he didn't see. Uh, I'm not sure how the trickery happened. It seems a little far-fetched, but it We'll just go with it, right? Uh, we won't get into too much depth with that. But, but here's what I want you to know. Because when I read this story, I want to be really protective of Leah in this story. 
um, because she's the one that's abused the most in this passage. And maybe it's because that's my sister's name too. Uh, but I always want to be really protective of her. But, but for a minute, you have to understand that Leah represents something in this passage. She represents something for all of us. And it's one of the most fascinating things in this narrative of how it turns and twists. It's a beautifully written story. Because here is Jacob saying, finally I found the thing that I wanted. I thought it was the birthright that was going to give me joy. I thought it was the blessing that was going to give me joy. But now finally I have Leah. And the passage says, but when, or Rachel. But the passage says, when morning comes, there was Leah. I have a friend who preaches this passage. And when he preaches this, he says, hey men, I know that you think some kind of excursion outside of your marriage is going to be great. But in the morning, it's always Leah. Anytime we sin, it's always Leah. Right? There is this desire that we have that drives us to take something that we believe is going to satisfy us and make us whole. And then what happens is when we receive that, when we get it, what we find is disillusionment because it didn't give us what we wanted. I got the corner office and now my life isn't fulfilled. I got married and I'm still miserable. I, I, I got the boat that I always wanted and I'm out on the lake every weekend but I'm still struggling. There is this desire, there is this delusionment, and then there is this disappointment. And we've all experienced that over and over and over again in our life. It's the cycle of our life. It's us pursuing things outside of the will of God, outside of the plan of God, believing that if I could shortcut God's plan, and if I could just get this, then I'm going to be happy and I'm going to be satisfied. But what comes with it is Leah. It's always Leah in the morning. Our idols always leave us with Leah. Tim Keller, in his book Counterfeit Gods, says this. When we face this disillusionment, there's four different things that we can do. The first is you either blame the things that you have and say, I've got to get something better. Right? So I got the corner office, now I need the penthouse office. I got the, the speedboat, now I need the speedboat with the double engines. I got this wife, but she's not good enough, I got to find another wife. And what we do is we keep trying to find that better thing. That better, that one more thing. And we recognize that it doesn't satisfy. Not long ago, Tom Brady, who I believe is an enemy to all football fans, uh, was, on, was on 60 Minutes. Uh, he was on 60 Minutes. And on 60 Minutes, he started talking about his life. And they said, Tom, like you have the life that everybody wants. You're, you're dating a supermodel. I think he was dating at the time. I don't know he's married. You've won the MVP three times. You're the greatest quarterback that ever lived. Like, every guy wants to be you. And Brit, the camera kind of zoomed in on Brady, and Brady said, but I still feel like it's not enough. I still feel like I've got to win one more MVP. I still feel like I've got to get one more Super Bowl. I still feel like I've got to grab that one more thing. What we do is we keep going back to the well that won't satisfy over and over and over again and just think if I can get the right drink, then I'm going to be satisfied. But it won't. It won't satisfy us. Jesus said, this is living water. I can give you living water that will satisfy you. Or you can keep going back to the well over and over again, drinking from things that aren't going to make you whole. Or you can come to me and surrender your desires, and I can give you true satisfaction in real life. Second thing that you can do is you can blame yourself and hate yourself. Just become angry with yourself for the choices that you've made, for the decisions that you made. Third, you can blame life. 
Right? You could become hardened and just harden your heart and become cynical and just stop hoping for anything good anymore. Just feel like oh, there's nothing good, so I can't get anything good, so I'm just not going to pursue anything. Or the last thing you can do is you can blame the theory of reality and say, there is no Rachel. In this world, there is no Rachel that's going to make me whole. In this world, there is no birthright that's going to make me happy. There is no blessing that I'm going to receive that's going to make me satisfied. And so maybe I was meant for something different. Maybe I was meant for something that's not of this world. The first of these decisions makes you a fool, right? I'm going to keep trying to find the next best thing, and I'm going to keep chasing at it. The second makes you a self-hater, right? You just hate yourself, and you're angry at yourself all the time. The third makes you utterly hard and cynical and difficult, and the fourth makes you a Christian. It makes you realize, I have searched for satisfaction in every way I can in this world and in the things of this world, and it doesn't seem to satisfy me, so there's got to be something bigger going on. There has to be something more significant going on. So Jacob says to Laban, what is it you've done to me? I served for, I served for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban, he's the con man, right? Laban actually outsmarts the deceiver in the midst of this, which there's a crazy irony of Jacob has been all about wanting, like disrupting the firstborn kind of thing, disrupting the way culture is supposed to work, disrupting all of these things, and all of a sudden it's Jacob's life that's disrupted by deception. So Laban says, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older. So finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for seven years of work. So Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah. And then Laban gave, him his, gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave another servant, Bilhah, to his daughter for Rachel as her attendant. And Jacob made love to Rachel also. And his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban for another seven years. Now, I want to acknowledge something because all of these things that are happening in here are terrible, right? Um, and, and I know that there's some of you who are looking at this and you're saying, like, this is an archaic book with archaic tendencies and traditions that are abusive of women and destructive to women and are terrible. And I want you to know I absolutely agree with you. In this passage, what we see is the buying and selling of women, we see primogeniture, which is this idea of uh, the firstborn gets whatever they want. We see sexual slavery. Uh, we see polygamy. Uh, we see all of these kinds of things that are offensive. And, and here's what we need to understand about this. If you read the book of Genesis, what we see is we see Genesis working against the culture that it's named. And whenever we see these things, polygamy, primogeniture, sexual slavery, all of these things, what follows is absolute destruction and chaos and pain. What follows is always something terrible. Everywhere you see this, it wreaks devastation in Scripture. And listen, I, I, I want to acknowledge something here. There are men who will use the Bible to abuse women. It's 100% true, and it happens all over the world. There are men who will use the Bible to push women down and not give them a place in the body. There are men who will use the Bible for terrible and destructive things. I want you to know this is nothing new. People have been using the Bible to do terrible things for as long as we can remember. But that doesn't mean that this is our culture. So here's what I want you to understand. The Bible 
is in the habit of lifting up women above their place in biblical culture. Over and over and over again, it lifts them up. Now, it doesn't lift them up to the place where we would like them to be in our culture. Does that make sense? But it does lift them up above their place in the Old Testament. And so sadly, it's been used to justify all types of terrible behavior against women. But what we see in culture, what we see in Jesus, what we see in the early church is a lifting up of women. There is an empowerment of women above where they're supposed to be in biblical culture. So in the Old Testament, we see women who are prophets. We see Deborah. We see Miriam. We see Huldah, who are all women who speak out for God, who have become the spokespersons for God, who are the ones who hear from God and then tell everybody else what to do. They are teaching, and they are leading, and they are discerning, and they are prophetically proclaiming what God is doing. In Jesus, over and over again, I could give you 35 passages where Jesus lifts up women, where he loves them, where he serves them, where he comes alongside of them, where he, where he takes care of them, where he lifts them up to places of leadership within his circle of friends. It's very easy to make an argument that Jesus' ministry could not have happened in the world if it was not for the women that came alongside of him. That the multiplication of the gospel in the early church would not have happened without the women leadership that was appropriated with him. There are women at the tomb who discover him. The most important discovery in the history of God that Jesus has risen from the dead, it was women who were there to discover him. Those women are lifted up over and over again. The New Testament is filled, filled, filled with women who are in leadership positions in the early church. In, in Romans chapter 16, what we see is that Paul writes this letter. And so what would happen is Paul is the scribe, he's the pastor, he writes a letter to the different churches, and then he sends somebody to go and teach the church what the letter says and interpret all that's in it which is the most important thing. It's what I do on Sunday, right? It's, it's preaching, it's teaching, it's answering questions about what the Bible says. It's discerning what's right. You know who Paul sends to all the churches in Rome? He sends Phoebe, a woman. I know that there's a way to read the Bible that says women are being pushed down and squashed and that says get in the kitchen and serve your husband. I've heard it. And I'll just tell you, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. The Bible is always lifting up women and loving women. And here's this beautiful thing in this passage, because this is an incredibly sad story. This is an incredibly sad thing. And, and the temptation as we read this is to feel sorry for Jacob. But you know who we should feel sorry for in this passage? Is Leah. Leah, whose father didn't love her enough to give her to somebody who really loved her. Leah, who was given to a husband who doesn't love her and doesn't want her and doesn't care for her. Leah, who is constantly competing with her sister, who believes that she can't cut it and can't make it and can't do all of these things. And my favorite passage in all of the scripture is verse 31, and it says, When the Lord saw Leah was not loved. Our temptation when we feel like we aren't getting what we want, when we feel like we aren't seen by God, where we aren't loved by God. And let me tell you something, moms in the room, it's easy for you, I know, to feel like you're not seen. It's easy for you to say, nobody sees all the hard work I do with our family. Nobody sees all the meals I prepare, all the messes I clean up. Nobody knows how hard I work. Nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody acknowledges, nobody says anything. I want you to know, God sees. 
He sees you and he knows you. If there's anybody in here that has a broken heart over anything, over anything that's happened in your life, your heart is broken over the loss of a loved one, your heart is broken over the fact that somebody sinned against you, your heart is broken because you sinned and made a mess of things, your heart is broken in any way, I want you to know that God sees you. He sees Rachel. It doesn't say he saw Jacob. It doesn't say he saw Rachel. It doesn't say he saw Laban. It says he saw Leah. He sees Leah, and he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. No matter how bad things are in your family, God sees. He sees you, and he knows you. So verse 32, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And here's the interesting thing. Leah starts doing the same things that Jacob is doing. So Leah starts to believe, if I could just get Jacob to love me, then everything's going to be all right. All right, Jacob's pursued the birthright, the blessing, and Rachel. Leah's just saying, maybe if I have enough kids, right? Kids, like, you got to understand the culture, right? This is a culture of primogeniture, right? So it's a culture of the eldest son is everything. It's a culture of patriarchy. It's the culture of the more sons that you produce for your, for your wife or for your husband, the better, more blessed the family will be, the more wealthy the family will be. So she thinks, if I could just have sons, everything's going to be great. She became pregnant, she gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben. And she said this, It is because the Lord has seen my misery, and surely my husband will love me now. You know what Reuben means? I am seen. She wants desperately to be seen. She wants desperately to be noticed. But notice what the passage right before it says. She's already been seen. She's already been noticed. She's just looking to be seen from the wrong source. She's just looking to be seen from the wrong place. Verse 33, she conceived again and she gave birth to a son. And she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. You know what Simeon means? To be heard. I desperately want to be heard. I desperately want somebody to notice me. So I'll name him Simeon. Verse 34, again she conceived, and when she gave birth to her son, she said, now at last my husband will come attached to me because I've borne him three sons, so his name was Levi. Levi means attached. She's having these children. She's naming these children, and within these children, she's asking for the thing that she wants from Jacob that God has already given her. She's already attached to the father. She's already heard and seen by him, but she's seeking that out in Jacob. Over and over and over again. Verse 35, this is the pinnacle of the passage, and this is where we wrap up today. This is beautiful, beautiful stuff. After doing this over and over again, after trying to find her fulfillment in having children and in the love of Jacob, she conceived again, and she gave birth to a son, and she said, this time I will praise the Lord. How beautiful is that? This time, I'm not trying to seek this out from anybody else. I'm going to name him Judah. And then she stopped having children. This time, I'm going to praise the Lord. This is the pattern of all of our lives. And I would suggest that salvation comes to us when we say, this time, I'm done chasing everything else. I'm going to praise the Lord. This time, I'm done pursuing the corner office. This time, I'm done pursuing that relationship that's going to fulfill me and make me whole. 
This time I'm done pursuing that job, that house, that boat, that whatever that thing is that you think in your head, if I could just have this, then I'd be fulfilled. This time I'm going to stop chasing all of that stuff and I'm going to praise the Lord. That is salvation. It's surrendering our desires to him and saying, God, I want this, but I'm trusting you. I'm not going to coerce it. I'm not going to shortcut it. I'm not going to deceive. I'm not going to be like Laban. I'm not going to be like Jacob. I'm just surrendering what I want to you, and I'm trusting that you're a good father who will meet me where I am and will give me the desires of my heart, and I'm trusting that you alone can satisfy. She kept saying, surely my husband will love me. Surely my husband will love me. Surely my husband will love me. And eventually she said, I'm just surrendering it to God. And my guess is in the midst of that, she might have said, a day may come when Jacob loves me. But if he doesn't, I'll serve you, Lord. A day may come when that person that I've been praying for will be healed. But if he doesn't, I will praise you, Lord. The day may come when I get that thing that I've wanted my whole life, but if it doesn't, I will praise the Lord. The day may come when all my desires will be fulfilled and all my dreams will be completed, but if they don't, I will praise the Lord. I'm trusting that God is good even when my circumstances aren't. And so as we come to the table today, as we come to communion, we do this every week. We, we just simply come to the tables of communion. We take the bread to represent Jesus' body, and we dip in the juice to represent Jesus' blood, and we recognize that Jesus is the sacrifice that paid the price for everything. We recognize that Jesus is all-satisfying and all-good. And so as we come to the table today, I would love for us to come to the table thinking about what's that thing deep inside your heart? You don't have to tell anybody else. What's that thing deep inside your heart that you say, if I could just have this, then everything would be great? If I could just have this, then everything would be satisfied. If this area of my life was fixed, then everything will be whole again. And what does it look like for you to come to the table today and say, God, if I never get this, I will praise you. If this never comes to pass, I still love you and trust you. And it doesn't mean that we stop asking for it, right? But we ask for God to deliver it in his timing and in his way, and we recognize I don't have to coerce the process. I don't have to shortcut it. I don't have to go my own way to get this done. I can trust in the power and the presence of a good father to give me what I need. He doesn't always give me what I want, but he gives me what I need. And so I'm going to walk in trust. I'm going to walk in faith. I'm going to believe that he's good. And I'm going to trust that no matter what else happens, God is the one who can satisfy me. He's the only one who can make me whole. He's the only one who can give me that thing that I need to get me through. I love it in this passage. Guys, this is so beautiful. The first person in the narrative of Jacob who finds salvation is Leah. It's the woman who nobody wanted. It's the woman who nobody wanted to marry, who nobody wanted as their daughter, who nobody wanted to look upon, who had weak eyes, who kept trying to find her satisfaction from everybody else, who nobody saw or anything, and God saw her, and God knew her, and God heard her, and God attached himself to her, and she's the first one that says, I don't care about all this other stuff. I'm going to surrender to you. I'm going to stop the go-getting. I'm going to stop the deceiving. I'm going to stop the shortcuts. I'm going to stop the idols, and I'm coming to you. 
And so for any of you in this room who feel like you're not seen or you're not heard or you're not known or that nobody notices you or that you've been given all the bad breaks in the world, I want you to know that there is a God who sees you, who knows you and is calling you to salvation. If there's anybody in this room who feels like somebody else ruined my life, their decisions had consequences for me and I'm bruised and I'm beaten and I'm wounded and I'm broken and I don't know how to pick the pieces up, God says, I see you, I know you and you can do it. There's going to be some folks in the back of the room to pray with you. If you want to just pray, if you want to spend some time just talking to God, just helping, asking somebody to pray with you. Sometimes there's real power in just naming, I need help. I need somebody to pray for me. I need somebody to stand beside me. I know that there's some people in this room who you don't have a relationship with Christ. But you're still pursuing things outside of his will and, and, and you're starting to think maybe this guy's right. Maybe there is only one thing that can satisfy. I've tried a million other things to satisfy me and none of them worked and maybe I gotta surrender my life to Christ. This is the story of Jacob. This is the story of Jacob's family. It's a story of surrender. It's a story of waving the white flag and saying I can't do it on my own so I give it to you. And our hope and our prayer is that we become a place where that happens often. Where we become a family where it's okay for us to wave the white flag and say, guys, I am not perfect. I don't have it all figured out. I'm still struggling. I still have junk in my life that I'm sorting out, but I know that I need Jesus. And so will you stand with me? Will you walk beside me? Will you love me in my mess? And will you pray for me? That's our hope. So Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would breathe on this room. I pray that your voice would speak loudly and clearly to us. I pray that you would reveal to every single person in this room that thing that they believe will satisfy them that ultimately will just leave them wanting more, that ultimately will leave them disillusioned and disappointed. And I pray that today we would be able to come to your altar and surrender those things to a good Father who loves us and knows us and wants the best for us. So Father, we pray that you would speak loudly. We pray that you would move in this place. And we pray that you would have your way with us. It's in your holy name we pray, amen.